0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, in America, there's an assumption that the most meaningful careers are found in office buildings among those taking part in the information economy, rather than the nitty-gritty of blue-collar trades. And to be eligible for these desirable white-collar jobs, you need to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans so you can go to college for four years to get a degree. The sacrifice is always worth it, though, or so we're told. My guest today on the show has made a career of questioning in this narrative. In fact, he argues that our obsession with college education and white-collar work to the denigration of blue-collar kind has left us economically and spiritually poorer, both on the individual and national level. His name is Mike Rowe. You might have seen his popular show, Dirty Jobs. Since his time as a TV host, he's become an ardent advocate of trade work through his foundation, Mike Rowe Works. Today on the show, Mike and I discuss where the idea of dirty jobs came from and why the show about blue-collar workers became a surprise national hit. We then explore why we devalue value blue-collar work, the societal and individual consequences of that devaluation, and what Mike is doing to make pursuing vocational and trade work cool and viable again. If you're a young man trying to figure out if college and an office job is right for you, or if you're a guy in a dead-end office job looking for an alternative, Mike is going to make a strong case on why you should consider putting on a hard hat and getting your hands dirty. After the show is over, check out our show notes at aom.is ro row, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic.
1: Mike Rowe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure.
0: Well, a uh, big fan of your work with Dirty Jobs and plus the work you're doing now after Dirty Jobs, promoting the trades, being an advocate for that. And I got to say, your TED Talk about sheep castration holds a dear place in my heart because uh, my, my grandfather just passed away last year, 101. When he was uh, in high school, he was a shepherd. And in his memoirs, he goes into detail about sheep castration. And I remember when I saw that episode when you you put your teeth on a sheep's testicles, I was like, "I know that. I know how to do that because of a grandpa.
1: <laughs> you know how few people have actually uttered that sentence in the history of time? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just it's it's dirty jobs was so um was so great in the sense that no two days were ever the same. But that particular day, uh, yeah you know the the sheep the testicles the cameras and off you go and yeah that episode changed everything really looking back on it it was um it, it was something the network didn't want to put on the air it was something people were completely freaked out about it was something we had gone out of our way to get permission to do you know i mean i called all the proper acronyms i called the humane society i called the you know PETA they told me how it was supposed to work and when i got there of course it was a totally different deal and we just learned so many things in that episode that it completely changed the direction of the show and to some extent my own career it's amazing what will happen when you you know bite the balls off a sheep.
0: I mean, how do you th- how did it change the direction of the show after you did that
1: well in a couple of ways you know we um you have to understand, first of all, Dirty Jobs was such an anomaly. It never was supposed to be a hit, much less even on the air. You know, it, we we snuck onto the air in 2003 at a time when there was really no other shows about work anywhere. And and the network was was kind of horrified, to be honest, by the number of people who liked it because it didn't really fit with their with their brand, or at least with their notion of what the brand was at the time. So there was a lot of cognitive dissonance about the show. And so we were constantly at odds. You know, I was always trying to, to push the envelope a little bit with the network and argue for a completely transparent look at whatever the job at, at, at hand was. And, you know, so there was just a lot of, there were files Brett, that that already existed on me. Files from OSHA, from the Humane Society, from PETA, from the FBI. I mean, there's an army of angry acronyms that used to watch the show and complain about things that they saw on TV that didn't comport entirely uh, with their worldview. So when I told my boss that I was going to be castrating sheep she said for god's sakes michael her name was gina (laughs) gina mccarthy she said for god's sakes please make sure we do this right so you know i called the proper authorities to tell them what i was going to do and and they explained that you would take rubber bands and put them over the testicles of the sheep and that would retard the flow of blood and eventually uh, the testicles would fall off and i thought well that's pretty weird but it'll be great tv and, of course, when we went there, there were no rubber bands. It was just a, a rancher and his wife and a pen knife and a scrotum that was quickly sliced open. Two testicles were exposed, and this guy started literally biting the balls out of the scrotum of sheeps and spitting them into the bucket that I was holding. And it was just so, it was just so shocking because it was so unexpected because I had done all my homework. you know, I knew how we were supposed to do it. So my TED Talk which, by the way, I I had no idea I was giving one until about 20 minutes before I gave it, but my TED Talk was really an explanation of that episode and how you can get all the authorities to tell you precisely how you're supposed to do a thing and still be completely dead wrong. As brutal as it sounded, the the sheep that we castrated with our teeth fared so much better than the ones (laughs) that we used the rubber bands on. Because you know, after Albert bit the balls off and spit them into my bucket, I was like, oh, hold on a minute. We can't do it this way. We have to do it the approved way. And so we did it the approved way. And then we had a chance to see the aftermath. And if you, if you look at a baby lamb with a rubber band around its testicles next to another baby lamb who just had its testicles bitten off, the baby lamb with the testicles bitten off doesn't have a care in the world. He, there's very little blood. He's already forgotten about that which is gone, and he's prancing around like it's a new day. The one with the rubber band around his nuts, he limps around and and quivers and sits in the corner in agony. It changed the direction of the show, and it changed the direction of my career, because it indicated perfectly that you can be absolutely right in terms of compliance, and still, somehow... Manage to have your head completely up your own ass.
0: You talk about peripatia, that Greek concept, in the
1: the show. Yeah, anagnorisis and peripatia. Sure, that's it. I'm, w- I'm wondering who.
0: who wonder who's the guy that figured out you bite the testicles off a sheep to castrate them. Like, oh, that's that was the best way to do it.
1: I I shudder to think like the true etymology of that of that process, but but I would imagine it simply evolved out of practicality. You know, if you're, I'm sure your grandfather would have told you back in the day, you know, you're not out in the field with a team of people. It's really just you and sometimes one other set of hands to properly apply the banding method. You need three people. And that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's a lot of extra personnel. This, this method is quicker. It's less painful for the sheep. It's a hell of a lot weirder, admittedly, but primarily it's more efficient. And in the end, one of the big lessons from Dirty Jobs was effectiveness is ultimately the thing that drives innovation. Conversely, and a little weirdly, not efficiency, but effectiveness. And we could probably do a whole hour on the difference between the two. But bottom line, biting the balls off sheet is a lot more effective than the approved method.
0: Yeah. So I mean, you you mentioned your your mind shift changed after that moment. Like so before that, were you were you kind of following the experts, quote unquote, that okay, this is the right way to do it. And I'm I'm here to make sure this is how work should be done. When I don't see it according to how the experts say it should be done, then something's wrong. And so after that, you decided, to, I guess your shift was, well, let's just see what the guys on the ground who are actually doing this what they f- think is useful and that's that's what we should that's what we should we should go after
1: you know in hindsight it's it's easy and tempting to always frame these conversations in terms of the exact moment of awareness and i said that in my ted talk and it was true to a degree but but the real truth is awareness and understanding and realizations anagoresis parapatia, enlightenment that stuff is almost always more analogous to a, a frog in the boiling water. You know, it's it's things you realize over time. You, you have a moment of awareness, but it doesn't really take root until you have some proof that you can really put behind it, and that takes time. So for me, the, the real peripatetic moment in my career happened in a sewer before Dirty Jobs, When i was working at evening magazine and i was i was working on a segment called somebody's gotta do it and i kind of i didn't hate my career in fact i i'd always kind of liked it i'd been impersonating a host for for 15 years was more effective as a guest instead of a host that realization happened when i was working with a sewer inspector thanks to a rat, actually, who assaulted me and drove me headfirst into just a, a river of sh- Again, another long story. But that's when I began to realize that personally, I could do better on camera as an apprentice as opposed to an expert, as a, uh, as a guest, as opposed to a host. So when I sold Dirty Jobs, I went into it with this understanding that I, I didn't want to do or impersonate a conventional host. In fact, my pitch to Discovery was, look, you guys, you guys need another expert, like you need a shanker. I mean, what you need is a fan of the brand out in the world, doing things not on your behalf, but out of his own misplaced curiosity. That was the pitch for Dirty Jobs. When we started shooting it, what I learned again and again, over and over and over, was that just about everything I thought I knew about work, had been, well, was wrong. Honestly, I had, I had become, uh, disconnected from a lot of the things that I had grown up with. You know, I had a lot of certainty growing up. My grandfather was a, uh, was a master electrician and also a plumber and a steam fitter and a pipe fitter and a welder and a guy who could build a house without a blueprint who only went to the seventh grade. My, <laughs> my connection to work as a kid was profound. I, I knew where our food came from. I knew where our energy came from, you know, and I had a lot of direct lines between how things worked and how the working of things benefited me. By the time I was 43, after working for 15, 16 years in Hollywood, I'd forgotten most of that or at least become disconnected from it. And so for me, on a very personal level, Dirty Jobs became a reminder of. All of those disconnects, all of the things that I, that I had taken for granted—from the lights coming on when we flick the switch to the crap going away when we flush the toilet—those little miracles took on a larger significance for me, thanks to that show, and I think maybe, hopefully, uh, to the viewers as well. So that's a long answer to your question, but but peripatetic moments happen one on top of the next, and their effect is almost always exponential. So. One day you wake up and you look back on all that stuff and you realize, holy crap, that's the point where my thinking diverged. That's the point where my career went in a direction I didn't intend it to. And, and so you can look back and you can retrofit things and, and try and sound smarter than you are. But in truth, in the moment, you're just a guy biting the balls off sheep trying to understand why everything you thought you knew about this process turned out to be completely upside down.
0: Well, speaking of how your career went a d- different direction than you thought it would go, I mean, since Dirty Jobs ended, you've become an advocate for, what, for making manual labor cool again. Started different foundations. We'll talk about that here in a bit. But let's talk about this. Why do you think manual labor is seen as uncool, right? And most kids don't aspire to be a plumber. They aspire to be some, I don't know, social media influencer or banker or something. Why 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 don't people want to go into the trades?
1: We're suspicious of anything that doesn't come with a playbook. We want a playbook. We want to know what a good job is. And the best way to figure out what a good job is, now I don't subscribe to any of this, but and I'm not an expert obviously, but I but I think I think what's going on right now in society is we have a lot of anxiety around education and vocation. And that anxiety primarily exists with parents who are desperate not to screw their kids. There's also anxiety within the educational system from administrators and guidance counselors who don't want to be accused of sending some kid down the wrong path. And of course, there's a lot of anxiety among kids themselves because they're looking at the vast unknown future of their careers and and hoping not to, at the same time, There's endless money available and a lot of pressure to borrow it in order to go down what a lot of people have said is the best path for the most people. If you put all of that stuff together, essentially, you've got a lot of anxious people saying, look, this is your best hope of being happy. Borrow the money, get a four-year degree, get out in the world, and get busy chasing your dream." In a, I, I know I'm generalizing but from what i've seen that's that's the trope that's the bromide that's the uh, that's the platitude that informs so much of what passes as good advice today regarding why blue collar work is not aspirational i think the main reason is because parents are hardwired to want something better for their kids than they had. The problem is we don't know what better means, but we now know that we have to define something as subordinate. So it gets a little wonky, but as theories go, I think it really comes down to in the mid seventies, we decided that college needed a big PR campaign and we gave it one. And that PR campaign elevated the importance of a four-year degree, not just for its inherent benefit, but it elevated it at the expense of every other form of education. So the message that started to go out to high school kids was, if you don't do this, you're liable to wind up over here turning a wrench we're doing something that you really don't want to do, some kind of uh, you know vocational consolation prize. So what we did was we separated higher education from all other forms of enlightenment. Then we attached a price tag to higher education that exponentially rocketed through the roof. That was in the mid-70s. At the same time, pop culture started to portray traditional working vocations as subordinate. I mean, if there's a plumber, come on, he's 300 pounds with a giant butt crack. It's just the way we portray plumbers. We write books, you know, look at the best-selling books over the last couple of years. The four-hour work week is somewhere near the top. I- I'm friends with Tim Ferriss. I like his book, but the things we started to respond to were messages that said, hey, you can work less, and if you if you don't work less, then you're going to be a sucker, so <laughs> Pop culture, portrayals of work in the media, educational distinctions that are basically presented as a false choice, in my opinion, all combined to drive the cost of college through the roof, $1.3 trillion in student loans right now as a result of this cookie cutter approach to you know, what a good education is. And on the other end, where does most of the opportunity exist today? Well, it's in the skills gap. It's 5.6 million available jobs right now that nobody seems to want that are sitting there waiting to be filled. It's not a coincidence that 75% of those jobs don't require a four-year degree, but rather training for the very jobs that we're talking about right now. So again, kind of a meandering answer, but the reason blue-collar jobs fell out of favor is because alternative education fell out of favor. It's because the people who do the kinds of work that we're talking about started being portrayed in a negative light. And here we are. The skills gap's not a mystery. It's just a reflection of, of what we value. So, too, is the cost of a four-year degree, in my opinion.
0: Right. And the irony is this playbook that we've been pushing on our culture. And I think it's just resulted in a lot of unhappiness. You have people with four-year degrees upping their eyeballs in debt, working some office job that they hate and barely making ends meet.
1: Yeah. Look, the hell of it is, you know, you, <laughs> here's what happens to me that that's always problematic. I'll do an interview like this and everyone will more or less agree that there's a there's a problem worth talking about, but what comes back over the net is Mike is anti college, and sometimes anti education, and nothing could be further from the truth. The problem that you're describing happens because of money. It's not it's not that a liberal arts degree is bad. I've got one and it serves me well, but I got mine in 1984 and it cost twelve thousand dollars. Today, the same degree from the same school cost eighty five thousand dollars. So if you spend that kind of money and borrow that kind of money and wind up suddenly in a cubicle doing something that, as it turns out, you really didn't want to do, how do you get off the road? You know, you've already majored in your major. You've already borrowed the money. And now you've got to pay all that stuff off. And you don't really have the freedom or the flexibility to hit the reset button without you know, punching out of the whole proposition with a giant pile of debt. That's really what the problem is, you know, and and I feel badly for this generation because they get a bad rap, in my opinion. You know, obviously there's room for improvement everywhere, but, you know, we we raised an entire generation of kids to believe that if they borrow the money and if they get the degree, then they will get the job of their dreams and then they will be happy. That entire... that entire proposition is fallacious and, and you can see it on the faces of dissatisfied workers, not just in cubicles across the country, but in all kinds of jobs, because so many people have come out of our educational system convinced that the key to job satisfaction is finding the job that will satisfy you. And of all the lessons that came out of dirty jobs, I think the biggest one is the fact that that belief is completely and totally upside down.
0: So don't follow your passion. That's bad advice.
1: I think it's bad advice, but I would never say don't be passionate about what you do. See, this is the, <laughs> the, the fun part of Dirty Jobs. Once it really got its feet under it and once it became a thing was that it, it allowed me to look back honestly and question some of the advice that I'd gotten in my life. And and I think a lot of other people have as well. Follow your passion is somewhere near the top, the worst advice ever given. It's right up there with work smart, not hard, but always follow your passion. The first time I saw it, it was written on a photo of a guy in a kayak paddling on some lake with mist on the surface. And there were butterflies in the background and uh, maybe even a unicorn. And it was just awful, you know, and the, and under it, it just says, always follow your passion. And I'm just like, what, what, what does that even mean? So on Dirty Jobs, the corollary was never follow your passion, but always, always bring it with you. Passion's too important to ignore, but it's too fickle to, to follow. And I just, I think, look, if you really want to see what following your passion looks like, watch any of the first episodes of American Idol. You know, any of the seasons, episodes one through five, where you see tens of thousands of people absolutely passionate about singing. Right. Absolutely passionate about their their artistry and their and their love of vocalizing. And they show up and they audition. And it's it's incredible to me that so many people can't sing. That's thats obvious. What's incredible is that these 18, 19, 20-year-old people are realizing for the first time in their life, the first time in their life that they can't sing. That's amazing to me. And, and that disconnect, I mean, you can see it in their faces when they realize, this is the first time somebody told them they're no good at a thing that they like. And so, it's a great truth that you know, we used to teach early on, but now a lot of people don't find out until it's very, very, very late in their career. But the reality is it's entirely possible to be very passionate about something that that you suck at. And um <laughs> and that's that's useful especially if you're gonna attach money to your pursuit. So if you're gonna go out into the world to try and make a living, you know, the big Lesson on dirty jobs. Time and time again, the people I met all said the same thing. I didn't go looking to be a septic tank cleaner. I went looking for an opportunity. And that started by watching where everybody else was heading and going in the other direction. Then I bought a septic tank cleaning truck. And then I hired three people. Then I bought another truck. And then another truck after that. Now I've got 12 people. We clean septic tanks. I'm a millionaire. I've got a summer house and a margarita machine next to my pool. Yes, I clean septic tanks, and I'm passionate about my life and my career, but I didn't start, I didn't get here by sitting down one day when I was 18 years old and going, okay, what is going to make me happy? This will make me happy, therefore, I'm going to go get that, and I'm not going to be happy until I do. Look, we do the same thing with, uh, with romance, right? Same exact thing. Happiness vis-a-vis romance today requires us to find our soulmate. Well, where's our soulmate? It depends who you ask, you know. Maybe she's on match, maybe he's on Tinder, maybe maybe it's eharmony, maybe it's in the bar down the street. But you know, <laughs> I feel it just it just seems like a tough way to go, you know, if your romantic happiness is going to be entirely contingent upon your ability to find the one other person walking around on the planet who you were meant to be with it's no less nuts in my view to approach the wide world of work and say okay all this opportunity out there but the one that's going to make me happy that's the one i got to find and then i can be happy it's we just make it pretty hard for ourselves i think and the dirty jobbers i met did not fall victim to that
0: we've had a guest on the show guy named cal newport he wrote a book so good they can't ignore you and he yeah he agrees following your passion is terrible advice he says passion comes whenever you get really good at a job and you see that you're effective in the world and you provide value that's that's when you start feeling passionate about the job that's when you start feeling satisfaction with your jobs when you see that but it's not chasing your passion
1: yeah good for him i couldn't agree more you know i gladwell put it I thought pretty well too a couple of books ago he talked about meaningful work meaningful work is the thing that ultimately will lead to satisfaction faster than anything else but again the trick is there is no book out there called meaningful work <laughs> right it's but but we act as though there is we're telling our kids today that this work over here is meaningful and important and worth your time. This work over here is not. Why we do that is is really, I think, one of the great questions. I, I've never heard it answered properly. I've tried to, but I usually just just ramble on into incoherence because it's it's almost unknowable. But we can't help ourselves as a society, as a culture, as parents, as teachers. We simply can't help but somehow prioritize jobs into this jacked up ranking system that is completely and totally counterintuitive to the result we want. You can Google 100 top jobs and you'll have thousands of pages, thousands of pages filled with hundreds and hundreds of surveys about what the best jobs are. You can do the same thing with schools every year, every year. Every major publication rolls out the top colleges in the country and the top jobs in the country. And you'll never find a trade school on that list. And you'll never find the jobs that are begging to be filled right now on that list. We just double down on the worst Odds in the world and we make it really really hard for kids to feel excited about learning a skill That's why we do what we do, uh, you know in this foundation thing. We if you train somebody to weld Well, then you can start working in nine months at 60 grand two years later. You can easily be making six figures but beyond that the business of mastering a trade opens an entire set of doors that most people didn't even know existed and so way leads on to way as the poet said and before you know it you'll find meaning in your work whatever the work is so
0: let's talk about some of the um, big picture societal consequences of this skill gap you talked about these are skill gap is there's jobs that are available ready for workers that just isn't anyone there to take them because they don't have the appropriate skills i mean how does that affect us as a country on a high level
1: well it's a micro macro thing so look on a on a micro level no pun intended it's it's consequences are are devastating you know for an individual who goes down the wrong road simply because he or she didn't know other opportunities were available that to me is the very the very definition of of a tragedy you know I mean, Aristotle said a tragedy was that moment in the narrative where the protagonist comes face to face with the unescapable truth of their own identity. And when you realize (laughs) that your identity was based on the pursuit of a thing that you that you never really cared for or understood at the expense of all the other opportunities that are out there, that's that really is nothing short of a of a personal micro tragedy to answer your question on a macro level i think the skills gap not to overstate it but i think it's a matter of national security our a balanced workforce is kind of like a coin you know each each side heads and tails is is equally important we don't have a balanced workforce today and the most obvious ramification of that is supply and demand. Call a plumber with a plumbing emergency right now. Tell me how long it takes for him to get there or her, and tell me how much it costs. I guarantee you the first number, how long does it take him or her to get there, is going to be a lot larger than it was 10 years ago. And the second number, how, how much does it cost? <laughs> That's going to be a lot larger too. So the cost of taking care of our infrastructure is going through the roof. Plumbing, electric, heating, air conditioning. I'm talking about our personal infrastructures in our homes. But the same thing is happening on a macro level. And I think when I I look at the current administration's desire to invest a trillion dollars in infrastructure repair, I say the same thing I did eight years ago when the last guy promised 3 million shovel-ready jobs in 2008. I remember I I wrote a letter to the president back then, and I said, look, uh, I'm pulling for you. Good luck. I've got this foundation. If I can help, I will. But the short version from my position is this. If you're getting 3 million shovel-ready jobs, then you have to understand that you're talking to a country that really doesn't admire the business of picking up a shovel, you just have to understand that, and you have to hit the the PR element of your structure program squarely on the head. Eight years later, I said the same thing to the current guy. If you're going to spend a trillion dollars to open up infrastructure repair, you have to you you surely know that we do not have a workforce standing by that's trained to do work. It's going to take years of training people and getting them the skills that they need. And that's not going to happen until or unless we celebrate these opportunities for what they are. So on a national level, the skills gap is nothing less than a matter of national security. 5.6 million jobs open right now. And Brett, no one talks about them and we don't talk about them because it's, well, it's unflattering. The existence of all that opportunity in a country like this—it—it—it it doesn't speak. It doesn't speak well of us. But more to the point, it contradicts the prevailing narrative. And the prevailing narrative says, if we bring jobs back, to the country, we're going to put more people to work. I'm not saying that's not true. It is. It is true. But it's not a panacea. And it's not, it's not an action for which there's an equal or opposite reaction. Our current narrative, in my opinion, basically says that the more opportunity we can create, the more people will go back to work. It's, it's not untrue, but it's not completely true because the existence of this skills gap proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the existence of opportunity alone is not enough to get everybody working so those two narratives collide and and honestly i've i've never seen anybody on tv reconcile it in a in a persuasive way how do you reconcile you know 60 70 million people out of the workforce who could be working with millions and millions of open jobs that nobody's excited about doing. Whatever your answer is, is probably going to get sucked into some polemic because everything is political today and, and then it's going to get drowned out. So the skills gap continues to exist because we keep lending money. We don't have to kids who are never going to be able to pay it back to encourage them to get a four year degree, which while valuable does not train them to do the jobs that actually exist.
0: And I imagine the skills gap is only going to get bigger as baby boomers start to retire. These guys who own plumbing shops or carpentry shops, there's no one else there to replace them.
1: There's going to be a reckoning. And, you know, much like the parapetia we were talking about before, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be the flick of a switch. Right now, you can see it in different states manifesting in different ways i i worked for years on a campaign in alabama called go build alabama which was motivated primarily by the construction industry down there who is in a full-on panic a full-on panic the average skilled tradesman in alabama is north of 55 and you know these aren't jobs you do into your 80s these guys are going to retire and there is no one there. There's no one standing by. There's no new generation of trained apprentices waiting to step in. The skills gap in Idaho is different. You know, they've got a they've got a different situation up there because they actually export a lot of materials all over the world that people really aren't up to speed on and over the next 15 years, the billions of dollars of opportunity that exists for manufacturing is is literally sitting right there and that state has a pretty bad record of kids coming out of college or sorry out of high school and going into any kind of additional training college or otherwise so they're looking very specifically at a massive chunk of opportunity that they're going to lose if they don't get some kind of giant training program in place where people can get the skills that are so clearly going to be needed in the next couple of years it's georgia has a has another challenge arizona has a different challenge iowa has a different challenge you know some of these are fundamentally agrarian challenges others are manufacturing it it's different in different geographies in the country so that's why it's it's kind of hard to say anything smart that sums the whole thing up and I'd be suspicious, honestly, of anyone who, who tries. But in a very general way, the skills gap manifests in in different ways, in different places. But in all cases, the the first step of the remedy is the same. We have to make a more persuasive case for the opportunities that actually exist and the educational alternatives that will train people For Those opportunities if we don't do that as a society back to your prior question, you know What's the real threat on a macro level if we can't persuade? the majority of Americans to be suitably gobsmacked (laughs) by the miracle of uh, Affordable electricity smooth roads and runways modern plumbing all the things that make civilized life possible if we no longer give a damn about those things then I don't know how to fix the problem because it has to start with a larger shared collective appreciation uh, for the society that we have. If we don't have that, then we're just going to have to slip a little bit further down before we hit bottom and somebody slaps us upside the head.
0: So yeah, different geographic locations have different demands for different types of blue collar jobs. So it's hard to say. I mean, I guess, are there... Professions that overall the country needs more of, like welding, is that is there a big skills gap there?
1: I'd put it somewhere near the top, to tell you the truth. We've we've had about six hundred, maybe eight hundred people come through my little foundation, and welding is somewhere near the top of the list of the skill that that we're most often asked to help.
0: Well, here's a question. Um, you know, one reason I, I've heard people say, oh, I'm not going to go into the trades. It's like, well, it doesn't pay as well as say a white collar job, being an attorney or being a business manager. What's the pay like
1: for these blue collar trades? Well, look, <laughs> the the actuarial charts, the statistical charts, you know, they are um, and and they'll give you an idea of factoring in millions of people in all different areas and I've I've seen most of that. And honestly, my, my feeling is, so what? How is it, I mean, a writer in Spokane versus a writer in Tallahassee, there's absolutely no reason to assume one is going to be making anything similar to the other. A welder in Dakota right now is going to be making more money than a welder in no, Oakland, guaranteed. So, you know, the, the geographical impact on blue-collar wages, I do think, is real, more real maybe than on white collar. But again, I don't know what to conclude from that, actually, in a world where you're either willing to relocate or you're not. And and I think that applies equally to both blue and white collar. I don't know when it happened, This um, this aversion to mobility. I mean, the country <laughs> fundamentally formed because people were willing to to go from one coast to the other. They'd go wherever the opportunity was. They we were we were very transient people. We've become really sedentary. You know, I'm amazed personally when I sit down and talk to people who are resistant to exploring a career in the blue collar trades or in the construction trades. The first thing they'll say is, well, the money's not as good. And I can say, "Okay, look, if I can show you where the money's better and how the money's better will you give it a shot and they'll say sure and then I'll I'll walk them through I mean it, look I can I can take the same statistics that show a four-year degree is always better and and I can conclude a completely a completely different conclusion it's it's easy to manipulate the numbers but it never really comes down to that what it comes down to next is people are like well tell me again where I have to go and and that's almost always where it falls apart we're just we want the job that we've identified that will make us happy we want that job at the money that we believe is fair and we want that job in the zip code where we currently live and and those three things are primarily what what i run into most often with people who are resistant to at least looking at the opportunities as they exist today. I'm not sure I answered your question because- it, it,
0: You did. No, the, uh, the, uh, we had an economist on our podcast, Tyler Cowen, uh, just published a book called The Complacent Class. And he talks about how we become less mobile in our country. People just want to stay put. And, uh, yeah, you're right. We used to go travel the country for opportunities. We no longer do that anymore. And he makes these all these arguments that it's, it's hurting the economy, but it's also causing us to become more segregated. And it's a lot of downstream effects of us becoming less mobile. So if you haven't checked check that book out, check it out. It's really interesting.
1: What's it called again? The Complacent Class. I'm writing it down right now. It, it reminds me of a thing. There, there used to be this thing called the Popcorn Report. A woman called herself Faith Popcorn. This is back in the 80s. But she talked about it in terms of our unwillingness or our, our growing unwillingness to even venture out of, our, out of our own homes. And she was looking at the coming technology Uh, And predicting that we'd have something, uh, she called it cocooning, where, you know, we would just more and more and more build our homes in a way that allows us to uh, stay in them more and more. And then, of course, with delivery services and better technology, better TVs, everything else, cocooning turned into something she called burrowing. So, you know, we just kind of doubled down on the whole notion of a cocoon. And so essentially we're, we're here now we're, we're, we're more connected than we've ever been thanks to the kind of technology we're using right now and social media, but we're more disconnected than we've ever been as a result and less mobile at the same time. And so, you know, I'm not sure what's next. Where do you go after burrowing? Probably like the, uh, you know, you're going to wind up in an altered states tank like William Hurt. You know, just going to be, we're just going to be there suspended in some kind of gooey animation. Completely connected and mentally fulfilled, but (laughs) it's the atrophy that's going to kill us in the end.
0: Besides the blue collar trades, are there other trades where we're seeing uh a... a skills gap cuz I, I, I can think of one off the top of my head is uh, tailoring i've got a my tailor he's this 96 year old polish immigrant he survived the holocaust he's here in town i and i'd be like why are you still working and he says like there's no one else to do the work like i can't retire he says yeah no one wants to go into tailoring or learn a trade and the thing is the money's good like he's he's expensive and he can be expensive because he's the only one who can do what he does like
1: really well yeah look there's a there's a tension between what I do, what I want and what I hope for. You know, I'm 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 a fan of the guy you just described and I'm a fan of the plumbers and the electricians and the pipe fitters and all the people that I that I rely on. I want them to do well, but at the same time, I'm a consumer. And so, you know, when my toilet explodes, you know, when my when my engine just falls out of the car, how do I want to pay? Right. So this is where labor and work sort of diverge. You know, oh, they've they've come to mean different things. I love the fact that your 96 year old Polish tailor is still making a great living. But I hate the fact that no one has looked at that industry and said, good grief. Look at all the opportunity here. The answer to your question is, sure, the skills gap applies to any vocation that requires a skill that can only be attained through training and apprenticeship. And I can't think of a single vocation that relies on those two things where a gap hasn't manifested. So yeah, you, you can, you, you can talk about, uh, cosmetology. You can talk about Taylor. You can talk about all that stuff. The, the only distinction I make, and it's really, it's just a, it's just a fact. Some jobs fundamentally improve, call them the, the wants of our life. You, you want your suit to look good. You, <laughs> you, you want to be able to uh, get a haircut in a way that doesn't require you to schedule the thing three months in advance. But you need, you need your toilet to flush when you hit the handle. You need your lights to come on when you flick the switch. You know, we need this technology you and I are using right now to function properly for this interview to occur. so so there's certain v- vocations upon which the entire country depends. And there are certain vocations uh, that we like. So I do draw, I do I do make a distinction. You know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a judgment, but I make a distinction between a really great plumber and a really great tailor, because life goes on without a really great tailor. With plumbing, not so much. That's true.
0: That is true. Not so much. So, tell us a little about the the, the foundations you started to promote blue collar trade work.
1: Well, actually, not long after that whole sheep castration thing, it became so clear to me. This was in two thousand eight. You know, and when the economy tanked, the obvious narrative and the obvious headlines that we saw day after day after day focused on unemployment numbers. And as the unemployment rate nationally crept up to around 10 percent, everywhere I went on dirty jobs, I saw help wanted signs. I mean, everywhere, uh, all 50 states. And so it was that awareness that there were two conflicting narratives going on, a widening skills gap contemporaneous with rising unemployment, that made me think, you know, if this show has any kind of worthwhile legacy, maybe it should be me talking about the opportunities that exist that no one else talks about. So that's how the foundation started. In, in 2008 on Labor Day, I asked the fans of Dirty Jobs, who happily numbered in the millions, to help me build a trade resource center online that that collated the alternative educational programs state-by-state state, along with apprenticeships and fellowships and all of the things that weren't a four-year degree that would lead to jobs that actually existed. And the fans of the show were amazing. They, they just overwhelmed us with information and links so i i hired people to try and organize that and then i built a trade resource center and put it online and we called it microworks it was it it was useful to a point it wasn't a job board but really what it was was just proof positive that opportunity was everywhere and that was a useful message i think for people to hear in 2009 i think it's useful to hear now but the trade resource center became very difficult to manage because it was so enormous and I'm not an IT guy and I didn't want to spend so much time, you know, organizing things through some sort of, you know, modern age Dewey decimal system. It just uh, it was it was killing us. And besides the more important element from building the trade resource center was just the idea that I could go out and say look what the fans of the show did, look at the opportunities that exist. And as I started doing that, companies started coming and saying, you know, we have a lot of those opportunities right here. How can we help? And so I started partnering with lots and lots of different companies to focus on jobs that existed under their roof. And then then people wanted to contribute. And I didn't, I didn't really have a mechanism for accepting money, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I, I resisted that for a while. But ultimately, it seemed... Like a sensible thing to do to set up a scholarship program, so MicroWorks kind of evolved over the years. But today, it's still a PR campaign for jobs that actually exist. Uh, but primarily, it's a scholarship fund. Uh, we call it a work ethic scholarship program. We look for people who are willing to get the necessary training to pursue the kinds of jobs that we're talking about, and that's. That's been pretty rewarding, and it's been it's been good. You know, not not huge by foundation standards. We've given away a little more than four million dollars since we started, but they're modest stipends. You know, two two thousand here, or five thousand there. You know, people who want to be a tailor, people who want to be a plumber. You know, we well, we can help, and so we have. And uh, honestly, of all the things dividing the country right now, the thing that worries me the most is is the divide between a big group of people who seem convinced that the the system's totally rigged and there is no hope and a group of people who are convinced otherwise. So I'm in that group. Uh, I know for a fact that uh, there's, there's not a single place in the country where somebody isn't hiring within sort of wherever anybody is sitting right now. I know that. And I've seen it again and again. I've seen what can happen if people enthusiastically go after the first few rungs on the ladder. And I can prove it. So that's why the foundation evolved. That's why I continue to work on it to this day. And, um, and with luck, uh, you know, we'll continue to move the needle in the future. Well,
0: so Besides the, uh, the foundation, you've also started a podcast yourself, The Way I Heard It. What was the impetus behind that, and what sort of stuff will listeners find on your show?
1: Honestly, that, that thing turned into... That was another unexpected parapetia. You know, I, I, I like... It was a, a year ago, I was uh, saying to a friend of mine, you know, Paul Harvey was... Uh, you remember Paul Harvey, by any chance? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: I think he's from Oklahoma. I'm from Oklahoma.
1: Yeah, I think, he's- I th- I think he might be, too. He worked in Chicago, mostly, but... He had a show called uh, called The Rest of the Story. It was you know three or five minute mysteries. He'd do them every day, and um, and I loved them because they were they were basically biographies and little history lessons, but served up as a mystery. So you don't really know who he's talking about until the last sentence. It just occurred to me that nobody was doing anything like that. And by the way, Paul Harvey, Charles Corral, George Plimpton, Studs Terkel you know, these guys are all dead and, and they left a huge smoking. They just don't make them. And, 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 and people don't tell stories like that anymore. And I would in no way, you know, compare myself to them. I can't fill their footsteps, but I can, I can follow in their footsteps maybe. And so with that in mind, given the amount of time I was spending on airplanes, I just thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try and write one of these mysteries a week in the style of Paul Harvey. Anyway, we started doing it a year ago, and I started posting them under this podcast called The Way I Heard It. I didn't pay much attention to it because I don't really understand the whole podcast thing, and I was really writing them just to entertain myself, but somebody called a few months ago and said, listen, these things have been downloaded 22 million times, and you know, I was reading them on Facebook as well, and they were viewed something like 30 million times, so... And you said, yeah, "You should maybe do some more." So I'm, I'm doing that, and, and it, and, it, and it's really fun. You know, I'm, I'm not a writer by trade, but I love to write. These have been rewarding, and the feedback's been great. So as soon as we're finished today, I'm gonna go upstairs. I'm gonna write one, and, and we'll post it, and we'll see where it goes. But so far, so good.
0: Fantastic. Well, Mike, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Anytime. I appreciate what you guys are doing as well, and I. uh, I hope we can do it again.
0: My guest name is Mike Rowe. You know him as the host of Dirty Jobs. You can find out more information about Mike's work, what he's doing with Mike Rowe Works at com and ProfoundlyDisconnected.com. Also check out our show notes at AOM.IS slash Rowe where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, have gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.